0: the 17th (coughs) chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew I'm going to read it from um, J.B. Phillips' version in modern English chapter 17 of the Gospel according to (coughs) Matthew commencing at verse 1 Six days later Jesus chose Peter, James and his brother John to accompany him high up on the hillside where they were quite alone. There his whole appearance changed before their eyes, his face shining like the sun and his clothes as white as light. Then Moses and Elijah were seen talking to Jesus. Lord exclaimed Peter it's wonderful for us to be here if you like I could put up three shelters one each for you and Moses and Elijah but while he was still talking a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my dearly loved son in whom I am well pleased listen to him When they heard this voice, the disciples fell on their faces, overcome with fear. Then Jesus came up to them and touched them. Get up and don't be frightened, he said. And as they raised their eyes, there was no one to be seen but Jesus himself. On their way down the hillside, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. Then the disciples demanded, Why is it then that the scribes always say, Elijah must come first? (laughs) Yes, Elijah does come first, replied Jesus, and begins the world's reformation. But I tell you that Elijah has has come already, and men did not recognize him. They did what they liked with him and they will do the same to the Son of Man. Then they realized that he had been referring to John the Baptist. When they returned to the crowds again, a man came and knelt in front of Jesus. Lord, do have pity on my son, he said, for he is a lunatic and in a terrible state. He is always falling into the fire or into the water. I did bring him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him.
1: You really are
0: an unbelieving and difficult people, Jesus returned. How long must I be with you? And how long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus reprimanded the evil spirit, and it went out of the boy who was cured from that moment. Afterwards, the disciples approached Jesus privately and asked, Why weren't we able to get rid of it? Because you have so little faith, replied Jesus. I assure you that if you have as much faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this hill, up you get and move over there. And it will move. You will find nothing is impossible. As they went about together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is going to be handed over to the power of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life again. This greatly distressed the disciples. Then, when they arrived at Capernaum, the temple tax collectors came up and said to Peter, Your master doesn't pay temple tax, we presume. Oh, yes, he does, replied Peter. Later, when he went into the house, Jesus anticipated what he was going to say. What do you think, Simon, he said? Whom do the kings of this world get their rates and taxes from, their own people or from others? From others, replied Peter. Then the family is exempt, Jesus told him. Yet we don't want to give offence to these people. So go down to the lake and throw in your hook Take the first fish that bites, open his mouth, and you'll find a coin. Take that and give it to them for both of us. Now this evening we come to the third uh, subheading of this third main division of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to take an evening again on this one chapter um, i'm not going to apologize for it because in actual fact these last three uh, evenings when we have dealt with these three subheadings have i believe been um, really quite important we are at the heart of the gospel according to matthew so i won't um, uh, sort of say how sorry i am that we're going to spend an evening on this um, one chapter I believe it's perhaps a chapter that or an event that we tend to overlook and do not really often see its true and real significance so this evening we come to this chapter 17 uh, which we have entitled obviously the transfiguration of Christ it is in this main Uh, this third main division of Matthew, the realization of the kingdom to be through Calvary. We have already dealt with the revelation of God's eternal purpose and objective and last week we dealt with the way to the fulfillment of God's uh, eternal purpose. Now we come to this transfiguration of Christ. It is in fact the next major stepping stone the next major and vitally important stepping stone to Calvary in the life of Christ. The first was obviously his birth the second was his baptism and anointing the third was his temptation the fourth is his transfiguration. Now it is often that we overlook just how vitally important to the whole scheme of God's salvation the transfiguration of Christ is just because we tend to look upon it as a rather wonderful experience that the Lord Jesus had and that the three main chief apostles had with him. He was uh, uh, just simply um, filled with uh, the brightness of God's glory. But of course this event has much more significance than that simply Christ shone uh, with glory that is the only the outward evidence of a tremendous step taken by God in this matter now what what did in fact happen well if you take Matthew chapter 17 and keep it open in front of you um, approximately Approximately one week, uh, wait till that plane's gone over. Approximately one week after the events described in Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13 to verse 28, uh, this event took place. Just one week. Now, it opens with these very important words, and. After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and went up into a high mountain uh, alone. Um, Now we often overlook the connection um, of the transfiguration with the events of those verses in chapter 16. In other words all that um, transpired in this chapter 17 followed on and is meant in our minds to be linked with those tremendous statements of Peter and Christ in these verses in chapter 16. When Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the Lord Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed that unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven has revealed it. And I say that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he went on, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom and so on. Not only those, but the statements that follow that the Lord Jesus said from that time onward began the Lord Jesus to say that he would be delivered up to the chief priests and would be scourged and crucified and on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And then... The further great statement of the Lord Jesus, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He who would save his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake, the gospels, the same shall find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, after six days, the Lord Jesus took up these three chief apostles. In other words, all that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was the vindication, the authentication, the confirmation of those statements made in those verses. In other words, it was the confirmation that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, the the long-looked-for and long-sought-after Messiah. He was indeed the one who was to be raised up to whom all the Old Testament looked. The, The law, the prophets and the writings all spoke of this one and all, as it were, predicted his coming. The transfiguration was, in fact, the confirmation that the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was this long sought for, long looked for Messiah. But more than that, it was the confirmation that this was the one who was going to build his church and against which the building that he was to be the work of his hands against which the gates of hell would not prevail. This was the confirmation, uh, again, uh, that the Lord Jesus was indeed that one. Then again, it was the confirmation that we, and we shall see this as we move on in this study, it was the confirmation that there was no other way for the obtaining of that kingdom There was no other way for the bringing in of the glory of God than by Calvary. And in in an extraordinary way, the transfiguration of Christ, um, as it were, sets before us in the simplest and starkest terms the fact that unless the Lord Jesus turned round and came down from that mount of transfiguration, there could be no glory for you and me. Glory for him, yes, but glory for you and me never. It would be eternally denied to us because we have all fallen short through sin. So in many ways, um, the this uh, chapter is of very real importance and it is connected with all that precedes it in those verses uh, 13 to 28 of chapter 16. Um, I also ought to um, underline the fact um, that Luke, not Matthew, but Luke tells us in the same, uh, uh, his account of the transfiguration that when Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with the Lord Jesus, they spoke of one subject only, and that subject was his death on the cross. That was the subject which occupied uh, them uh, in their conversation there, which is also, I think, uh, very important. It all goes back to this previous chapter. You see, it was the confirmation of the fact that the kingdom could only be realized through Calvary. Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures in the Old Testament, both saw the point clearly. And when they appeared and talked with the Lord Jesus Christ, their whole conversation was filled with this central uh, topic the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. I think you all know that the Greek word that is used by Luke for decease or death is the word exodus. And it's a a wonderfully um, descriptive and illustrative word. They spoke, Moses and Elijah speak with him of his exodus which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. What a wonderful thing that is when you think of it. it it gathers up the whole Old Testament in one word, the exodus, his exodus his passing over of the gulf of the sea of sin and of death and of corruption his cleaving of a way through for himself and for a people that would follow him well now um, we must um, actually look at this event more closely. The Lord Jesus took three of the disciples with him, Peter, James and John and um, uh, James was the first martyr of the church of course, he was martyred within the first um, months of the church's existence the first martyr in uh, the New Testament Um, Peter upon him, this seen this event made a tremendous impression we shall be looking at what he says about it in a moment and upon John also it made a tremendous impression Um, so much for the technicalities Uh, they went up on this hillside Um, they spent some time together and evidently at some point uh, the Lord Jesus was transfigured in glory Um, and then Moses and Elijah appeared to them all and uh, Peter, James and John heard a conversation which they have not recorded for us uh, uh, between the three a discussion about what was going to happen at Jerusalem then, of course, Peter makes his um, suggestion. Gruesome, I suppose, is the only way to describe it, although I'm quite sure that most of us would have spontaneously made the same type of suggestion. It's the kind of silly thing we all do. Um, I mean, who'd ever thought of, of, of spirits of just men made perfect being sort of made comfortable in boughs of trees. You see Peter's idea was. There were evidently some sort of scrubby kind of trees around. And his idea was. So we saw down a few boughs. Rather like we do in the Feast of Tabernacles. Saw them down. Put them together. And now here you'll have a shelter. Here for Moses. And here there'll be a shelter for you Elijah. And here there'll be one for Christ. And the three of you can talk together. Shaded a little. And a little more comfortable. Um, it was an extraordinary statement really to make. When you think of the wonder of the event and all that it meant, um, but it's also a very human kind of thing, the kind of thing that all of us would do. When that happened, a cloud came down. The other Gospels tell us that this bright cloud that came down, um, the disciples, the three of them, feared exceedingly as they entered into it it blotted everything out. They lost Christ, they lost Moses, they lost Elijah, they lost everything. I wouldn't be surprised they lost one another as well. They lost everything in that cloud. All that happened was that they were in great fear. Then they heard the voice of God. This is my dearly loved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen <coughs> to him. Other rebuke for poor old Peter, in one way, <laughs> as if the Lord was saying, "Don't listen to Peter uh, <coughs> on this matter. You listen to my son." And uh, then the cloud lifted, and the disciples were evidently so terrified. They, so Matthew tells us, they didn't lift their eyes, but the Lord Jesus came and said, "Don't be afraid. Get up." And lifting up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. Now, all, four, all three Gospels underline the fact that they saw Jesus only, as if there is more than just the fact that the others had vanished, as if there was spiritual significance in the fact that finally they were left with the Lord Jesus only. Now, that's what happened. What is the meaning of it all? On the way down, the Lord Jesus said to them, you're not to speak with anyone about this until I'm dead until I've been raised from the dead after that you can speak but you are not to say a single word and then they brought up the question of Elijah they'd just seen Elijah and they said well how is it that they say that Elijah must come and the Lord Jesus said well Elijah's going to come uh, but I say to you also he's already come and they understood that to mean John the Baptist quite correctly uh, and evidently before the Lord comes again there will be a ministry like that, if not in one person, in the company of prophets, we don't quite know clearly. But there will be, before the coming of the Lord, a final great ministry, turning many to the Lord and probably connected um, with uh, with events all over the world. Um, anyway, that we don't, we don't know so much about at present. After that, they went farther down the hill, they came to a crowd, and then, of course, if there was any scene, father removed from glory, here it was. A father, a distraught father, the Lord Jesus was back now in all the darkness and the sin of the world, a distraught father with his epileptic son. And he said, Lord, I've done everything for this boy, I just don't know what to do with him. He throws himself into fire, he throws himself into water, we've got to watch him all the time we're bound to him hand and foot we, we, I did take him now this is a point that doesn't come out in your authorised version but it does in Philips I did take him to your disciples but they couldn't cure him uh, as if that was the last hope this poor man had the Lord's words seem at the first reading to be very harsh he said um, how long shall I put up with you you faithless generation and um, he had said to the boy it was to be brought to him and you know what happened? He healed the boy instantly. After that, there was one further miracle, uh, a rather amazing one, where someone said to the Lord, uh, someone said to Peter, I your, your master, of course, doesn't pay the temple tax. And Peter said very quickly he did, but he wasn't quite sure. and went straight back. And when he got to the Lord, the Lord said to him, brought the matter up himself. And... Um, Peter went down, evidently, to the sea, uh, threw in his fishing line, caught a fish, drew him in, opened his mouth, took out the shekel and paid the tax.
1: <laughs>
0: a most wonderful way of paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was, a, it was a miracle in its own way, as great as the other miracle. Now, there, that, that's what happens in this chapter. Now, what really is the meaning of it all? Why was the Lord transfigured in glory? Why did he only take three of the apostles with him? It's an extraordinary thing he took these three, Peter, James and John, again and again into the inner sanctum. You remember when, uh, I think it was Jairus's daughter was raised, he shut everyone else out and only took in Peter, James and John. In the garden of Gethsemane, the others remained a little further away. He took Peter, James and John with him further and then he went forward a little and prayed. Now, <clears throat> what does the word transfigure mean? What does it actually mean? Well, the word at means uh, to change into another form. It's as simple as that. Just to change into another form. Uh, the same person, but somehow changed. Uh, metamorphosis is the word we, are, we get from the exact Uh, word used here Um, now as man Christ is transfigured by the glory of God not as God he already had the glory but as man here he is transfigured by the glory of God it changed his form his physical form so that although he was still the same Christ, he was still the same, uh, had the same body, yet his face shone as the sun. An extraordinary statement. It shone as the sun. In other words, um, they could hardly look at him. It was a blazing light that transfigured the the, the features of his face. And his clothes, were as white as light. Now, if you try to look at the sun tomorrow, you go up and look at the sun, you'll understand the statement that is made here. His face shone as the sun. His garments, not only his own actual person, but his very clothes. Um, Another one of the gospel writers puts it, glistered, glistered, dazzled like sun on snow, this happened just suddenly, transfigured, the same Christ, and yet he was transfigured by the glory of God. His features were the same, yet they were transfigured with a radiance of glory that was just like the sun in full strength. His clothes were the same clothes he had before, but they simply radiated light. It was the first time in human history a man had reached the glory of God. The first time in human history a man had reached the glory of God. It had never happened before. And he reached the glory of God because this man was inherently and practically worthy of the glory of God. Now that's the point. For the first time in human history a man walked this earth who was worthy of God's glory. God could no more withhold his glory from that man than be a liar. That man was worthy of the glory of God. He necessitated the giving of God, God's glory, to him. That had never happened before. Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. But he was still a sinner. Moses saw God. Almost as it were. Face to face. And his face shone. For one day. <coughs> but Moses was also a sinner. Like you and me. He was not allowed to go over into the promised land. Elijah. Elijah. Was a man who saw the glory of God. He was caught up in a whirlwind into heaven. But he was a sinner. Many others in the Old Testament and through down through the long history of mankind who had at different times seen the glory of God or experienced some touch of the glory of God. But this was the first time that a man as it were, was worthy, inherently worthy of God's glory. And I mean by the word inherently, he he was, well, he was essentially worthy of it. It wasn't just the fact that God in his grace said, I will glorify him. The fact was the man was essentially, in his very being, worthy of God's glory. This had never happened uh, before in the whole history of mankind. Where Adam failed and fell short of the glory of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as man, went through and succeeded. Where Adam fell short, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, as man, went right through and pierced, as it were, the sound barrier. He was through. And Peter and James and John were the witnesses of the first man in human history who passed into the glory of God. Oh, what a tremendous thing it must have been. I have no doubt they didn't understand it. Just like you and me. Oh. Sat there with their mouths wide open. See? Oh. What a sight. They didn't understand it. Peter would never have said, Lord, Lord, let me build here a little shelter, and there a little shelter, and there a little shelter. We'll have all three of you sitting around having a talk. (laughs) I mean, it's like us all, isn't it? Do any of us, have I ever understood the transfiguration of Christ? Have you ever really understood the transfiguration of Christ? It's simply glorious. Why, I, I have no doubt that afterwards Peter, if I may put it in almost a crude colloquial way, kicked himself again and again when he thought about it. Looked back and thought about, my goodness me, what I witnessed. What I witnessed. I witnessed the first man passing into the glory of God. Now there shall be many more, for he is bringing many sons unto glory. But this was the first one who ever passed into the glory of God because he was intrinsically worthy of it. What a wonderful thing that must have been. God's glory had appeared uh, to man a number of times in history. You remember the time in Exodus chapter 16:10, 10 where it says they all saw the glory of God like a cloud. They stood at their tents and saw it. Or again, it says in chapter 24, 16, 7, they saw, they saw the glory of God. Or when there was that rebellion with Korah and uh, they stood, they came out and the glory of God appeared the, at the entrance into uh, the tabernacle. Yes, the glory of God had been witnessed and seen by the people of God at different times in history. At times it had filled the tabernacle. You remember in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, it says the glory of the Lord filled filled the tabernacle when it was set up and no one could go into it. Again in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 from verse 1 to 3, it tells us that when the temple was rededicated, uh, built for the first time and dedicated, the glory of the Lord filled the house and no one could go into it. Not even could they stand up to minister in it. The glory of God had in fact touched things uh, a number of times. I've only given you one or two examples of it. Men of God had been touched by it. You remember it says the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham in Mesopotamia. Again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, verse um 7 and verse 13 it tells us that Moses was um, the glory of God shone through his face and he put a he put a veil on it so that they couldn't see the passing of it it was passing and so he put a veil over his face so they couldn't see the actual passing away of that uh, glory now the the glory of God The very presence of God, that's what glory is, the very presence of God in a manifested way, that's glory. The very presence of God in a manifested way comes home to a man. Never in the whole history of this fallen world had God's glory found a permanent resting place. It came to the tabernacle, it departed. It came to the temple, it departed. It took up this man of God and left him. It took up that man of God and left him. At great points, in great turning points in the history of God's people under the old covenant, the glory of God touched them. But it had never found its permanent resting place. Now, it was as if the glory of God found its permanent home In a man and that man was the Lord Jesus Christ I shall say a little more about that in one moment it was a unique event in the whole history of creation of the universe Um, I suppose we could say really that God's glory is essentially linked to man it is true that one day the natural creation will radiate the glory of God the knowledge of the glory of god will will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea but the glory of god is essentially linked with man because the glory of god is not an impersonal thing it's not just an attribute it is the presence of god manifested it is the very being of god if you like manifested and god made us that he might dwell in us And the idea of glory is that it comes when God finds his rest and his satisfaction in man. He couldn't. So there was no glory. But when the Lord Jesus was the first man to break through the spiritual sound barrier, as it were, and go right through into the glory of God, the glory of God found its resting place, its permanent resting place. It came home and dwells in him and then all those who shall be saved through his work on the cross now in this radiant outshining of God's glory in Christ we see the glory of his person and his character you must not just think that this glory is is something that is a, a a thing. it is linked with the person and the character and the life, the nature um, of the person. Now, it is, as it were, the moral glory of the Lord Jesus. It's not reflected glory, it's inherent glory, if you can understand the difference. Not reflected glory, it's inherent glory. And um, it it is that kind of nature and life and character which we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, which of necessity reaches the glory. Now that's why the Bible says, Christ in you the hope of glory. I've got no hope of glory, believe you, me, and you know it. And you have no hope of glory, and believe you, me, I know it. But I can tell you this, I can tell you this that if Christ comes into us by the spirit of God there is a hope of glory because you see glory cannot just settle on us willy nilly in a sentimental way there has to be a character there has to be a nature there has to be a life there has to be a constitution if you like we see it all in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's why the glory of God came to him Now, if you take your Bible and you turn to 2 Peter, chapter
1: 1,
0: and verse 16 to 18, we read what years after Peter said about this event. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there was born such a voice to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and this voice we ourselves heard born out of heaven when we were with him in the holy mount. now isn't that wonderful now this word his majesty is a beautiful word it is a word that was sometimes used as a title his magnificence it really has the idea of magnificence majesty his majesty now when you think of it like that You immediately recognize God is not just interested in pomp And position God is interested in character And life And when Peter spoke about the Lord Jesus in this way He meant the magnificence of his character The magnificence of the man's inward life and nature and character He is worthy to be king of kings and Lord of Lords in fact one day when the whole creation from the angels and the redeemed and every living thing cries out worthy is the lamb it is because he is in fact worthy there will be no lie there people won't be singing hymns and thinking something else (laughs) sort of saying little things and really thinking in their heart I don't really think he is you know kind of thing is well he's king or she's queen but I I think there were some things he or she could smarten up on but every single one will say from the heart he is worthy because he is worthy and because everyone will recognise in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth they will recognise that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy well, uh, it's rather wonderful that Peter describes this scene as his majesty, his magnificence. John, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, is writing his gospel. And in uh, verse 14, he, 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 he puts this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then all of a sudden he breaks off. And he puts something in brackets. Listen. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Then he closes the bracket and goes on, full of grace and truth. The, the sentence really runs like this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. But John broke off and said, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the of the Father. in other words John said this was the kind of glory that belonged to a dif- that belongs to a different race of men, an altogether different race, someone begotten of the Father. it doesn't belong to us it is not within our sphere or within our realm. We catch also, I think, in the transfiguration of Christ, a glimpse of what God intended for man. You see, I, I mentioned this earlier. When you look at the transfiguration of Christ, there, there is a sense in which you are looking at what God wanted for you and me originally. It is what he intended for Adam and for Eve and for the whole human race. To be transfigured in glory. In other words, if we were to be hypothetical, speculative for a while, we could imagine to ourselves, supposing um, Adam and Eve had never fallen, supposing sin had never come into the world, supposing when they were tempted, Eve had said no, and Adam had said no, and the door had been shut, and instead they'd gone to the tree of life and taken of the tree of life in other words they'd received Christ they'd received the eternal life of God in Christ supposing they had been betrothed to God's son and the union had taken place then I am quite sure in the probation that followed much would have happened but there would have come a point when Adam was transfigured in glory and so with Eve They would have suddenly reached the glory of God. At a sudden moment, they would have been tested, tried, proved, and accepted. And they would have passed into the glory of God. And in a moment, they would have been transfigured. Now, what that means, we're not absolutely sure. It may mean that suddenly these human bodies become, they are the same in one sense, and yet they enter into another dimension. It is perfectly, I believe, possible indeed, I think it's more than possible, it's probable, that the Lord Jesus Christ now could have just, as it were, left the earth. He he was in a new dimension. He was transfigured. The same thing is going to happen to you and me when we're changed in the twinkling of an eye. Only we've got to wait. (laughs) But it's going to happen or when the dead in Christ rise first. To meet the Lord in the air. The same thing's going to happen. How are we going to fly up in the air? How are we going to overcome the power of gravity? Will we go out of doors and open windows or through walls? Of course, it's silly to even think about it. Suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, something will happen. We should be able to just go through solid ceilings and, and roofs. Just like that. Transfigured in glory. Now, would that had only happened to Adam and Eve? You've got some idea of what God intended for us. For us all, if there'd been no sin, if there'd been no fall, if there'd been no evil. We don't even know what God's real idea in the universe is, except that he wants to dwell in us and use us, and, and, and uh, he has obviously some great plan. We don't know really what it is. Sin has come in, the fall has come in, and we've all been trapped in this great parenthesis of human history, as we call it. We're all in it one day God will get on with the job and then we shall know what really he's going to do but the fact of the matter is this we catch a glimpse in the transfiguration of Christ of what God originally intended for man what man was destined for the glory of God and the kind of moral inward character and constitution that alone could attain to that glory on the other hand you can see that this world, the condition of this world, is hopeless. We have a constitution naturally and a character that even when it, at its most noble is impossible of, a, of, of attaining to the glory of God. Then I want you to note in verse 3 that Moses and Elijah appear representing the law and the prophets. Now to the Jew, perhaps not so much to the Christian, but to the Jew, the Mo- Moses and Elijah are the two greatest prophets. And uh, rightly so. Uh, <coughs> Moses represents the law, the patriarchs and the law, and uh, Elijah represents all the former and latter prophets. And so these two men stand out, uh, uh, um, as it were, as the representatives symbolising the whole old covenant and everything that happened in it all its prophecies, all its predictions all its types, all its ceremonies all its hope, its aspiration after the eternal glory of God the Apostle Paul put it like this those who seek for glory and honour and incorruption uh, these two men symbolize that whole history and much more I believe that they symbolize more, they symbolize for us the deep and often subconscious yearning and longing for the glory of God now in all true children there is a yearning for the lo- uh, to all true children of God there is a yearning for the glory of God You may not have yet even defined it in your own spiritual being. But if you've been born of the Spirit of God, if so be that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, there is within you already a travail that will not end, even if you know it only faintly. There is within you a travail that will not end until it is found in the glory of God. There is within all us Christians, all the people of God, a deep longing. Sometimes we don't know. We don't even know why. You see, some people are looking for an experience that will deliver them from all sense of travel, of all sense of frustration. But there is a right kind of frustration. Now, there is a wrong kind of frustration, too. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to be joyless miseries. You know. But he does want us to be people who understand that to the end of time there is some kind of frustration in this life down here. We're limited. We're limited. Even if the spirit of God is in us, the spirit of glory is in us. It only makes us all the more aware that we're in circumstances that are rather dilapidated. It's rather like that. Kings and queens living in rather dilapidated circumstances. A ruined world fallen world, a perverted world. We're surrounded with it on every side. We've got sin in our members to the end of our days. That doesn't mean we can get, We should just give in to it. But it's there to remind us. And therefore, you see, there is a very real sense in which in every one of us there is a longing and a yearning for the glory of God. That That indescribable, reaching out after something when I'll put it like this suddenly in a sudden moment it's revealed to you in a hymn or in your prayer or in your reading the Lord's coming back and for one moment you're not under any sense of condemnation and your heart leaps it just leaps automatically why does it leap what is it (laughs) It is because in you there is something that just cannot wait for the glory of God. There is something prepared in you for the glory of God. You are being changed from glory to glory. That doesn't mean that now you get so much of the glory, but you've got a capacity for glory. One capacity for glory is being exchanged for another, a bigger capacity for a smaller capacity. All the time, change from glory to glory. Well there is so much more I think we could say deep within our being there is this capacity for God's glory which can never be satisfied by anything else. Indeed I think within all humanity there is what we can call and have often said on this platform there is an aching void. Now we normally say it's an aching void for God because the outside man and woman wouldn't understand what we're talking about when we start talking about glory except that they think you must be some queer sect. That's overlived the Victorian era. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is that that aching boy deep within all humanity is, an, is a capacity for God's glory. And this explains the predicament of fallen man. He has within his very being, deep down within, buried by debris, buried by ruin, buried under all kinds of rotten rubbish, there is deep down within him still a capacity for the glory of God. And Satan and nothing else will ever be able to satisfy that capacity. It's an aching void, it's a a vacuum within. Because whatever the devil does to us, however much he perverts us, We were originally made in the image of God and there is a constitution there which the devil tries to fill, demonize, satanize but it's there and it was meant for God and it was meant for the glory of God. We were all made to be its dwelling place, to manifest and, and to express that glory. Some people have often said to me, do you think we shall all be beautiful in heaven? It's a rather extraordinary statement I suppose to make now, but people do sometimes think about it. Will we all be beautiful? Will there be anyone who's ugly in heaven? It's a question of what you call ugly. I remember once looking at a terrible creature, and I said to a friend as we were watching it on television, one of those zoo uh, um, programs, I just don't know, did God really create that creature? It was so ugly, so repulsive. My friend said to me, you can't say that. What's ugly to you may not be ugly to God. (laughs) And that's the point. Now, let me put it this way. The glory of God, in the plainest features, can somehow do something that makes them beautiful. It's not just physical beauty, although I believe God is a God of beauty, But it is the fact that the glory of God inside can do something that gives every one of us an originality and an individuality, which is right. We are meant to manifest and express this glory, but sin robbed us of the glory, enslaving us to the evil one and perverting our very constitution. Now, even the natural creation, it says in Romans chapter 8 from verse 19 to 22, it says that the natural creation around us is longing for the revelation of the sons of God. And what is it longing for? For the liberty of the glory of the children of God. It's waiting for the glory. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't profess to understand what it means. I often look at trees and flowers and I look at uh, animals, cats and other creatures that are near at hand and I think what will you be like when you've been released from your bondage to corruption that vicious cycle of corruption and decay and released into the liberty of the glory of the children of God what does God intend what is the idea I don't know but all I do know is this that even the natural creation groans and travails toward that day of this glory Now those three apostles, Peter, James and John, had a foretaste of it. For the first time in the whole sordid history of mankind, a man went through to the glory. It was the opening of a door in heaven. It was the first time, as it were, that something happened between heaven and earth which was absolutely satisfactory. A man went into the glory. He reached the glory of God. Christ then is the very fulfillment of the ministry of Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of the whole old covenant with all its promises and types and prophecy, all its hope of eternal glory, of incorruption. He is the fulfillment of it. And it is of his work that these two, Moses and Elijah, talk As if they've got right to the point. Oh I'd love to have been there. Um, I no doubt all of you would like to have been there too. Um, But being of a rather curious and nosy nature. I would love to have heard the discussion. (laughs) Just what did Moses talk about? Did he talk about the Passover lamb? Did he talk about the sacrifice did he talk about the tabernacle did he say well now lord it's all going to be accomplished on the cross that great exodus is going to take place." what did elijah talk about did he talk about all the failure of the people of god the failure um, of 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 their faith and so on and and then say well now lord all that we longed for all that we stood for is going to be accomplished in this one great act on the cross at Calvary, I don't know, but I'm quite sure it must have been a terrific discussion. Wonderful conversation. And uh, really, it, was, uh, it must have been as if the whole Old Testament was summed up in a few words by those men. They went to the, to, the, to, the, to the root of the matter in their own ministry. And said, now Lord, you're going to fulfill it. It's a lovely word they use. Uh, the exodus that, going, that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's how Luke puts it It's the only way of course That man, sinful man Could be brought to the glory of God It's as if Moses was saying You know He may have said to the Messiah You know dear Lord I once prayed Lord show me thy glory And uh, he may have said to Christ I realise that it is only through what you are going to do on Calvary that I shall really see the glory of God and be part of it the same with Elijah well we can never i trust you now now see underestimate the importance of this event uh, for the second time God's voice is heard the first time was at his baptism an anointing for the second time in the life of Christ the heavens open and the voice of God is heard saying the same words this is my beloved son my dearly loved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him the last time that voice was to be heard was the end of his public ministry just on the eve of the last week of his life when the Greeks came to him and said we would see Jesus and the Lord Jesus spoke of a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying said if it abides alone it, if it, if it uh, uh, remains it abides alone but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit and the voice was heard from heaven saying this is my beloved son <coughs> isn't it interesting the second time the voice was heard. It proclaims God's complete satisfaction. Christ has been tried, he's been proved, and he's been accepted. He is not merely sinless, but perfect. He has attained to the glory. Now, just like the priest under the old covenant, if you were going to offer a lamb, you took him, the lamb, to the priest, and he inspected it. He went over the whole thing, he he lifted up its fur, he looked behind its ears, he looked into its mouth, he looked at at its eyes, he looked all over the sheep, and then he stamped it and passed it. Not only without blemish, but perfect. This lamb can, can be sacrificed. The transfiguration was as if God was passing Christ. And stamping him as the sacrificial lamb of God, saying, this one is not only without blemish, but he is perfect. He can go forward to the great work of bearing away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist cried out in earlier days, Behold the Lamb of God who beareth away the sin of the world. Here the Father, as it were, passes his Son as absolutely qualified to do the work of our salvation. Now do you understand the importance of the transfiguration? Cut the transfiguration out and we have no salvation. This glorifying of the Lord Jesus Christ Was the committal of God Completely to the Lord Jesus Christ And absolutely perfect He was the second man The last Adam And where the first man The first Adam Had failed The Lord Jesus had succeeded Now Now listen At this point The Lord Jesus could have stepped into heaven to use a rather colloquial phrase he could have just stepped out of earth into heaven and said well goodbye I'm finished I've got to I've done it he proved to mankind that God was true he could have stepped now into heaven could have gone back with Moses and Elijah and never come back to this earth. But then there would have been only one man in the kingdom of God. Do you realize that? There would have been only one man in the kingdom of God. For even the saints, Moses and Elijah, were only in the forecourt of heaven. They were in what the old covenant calls the, the paradise, the forecourts, Hades. Hades. There would have only been one man in the kingdom of God do you know who that man was would have been the Lord Jesus Christ himself the only one (laughs) a perfect glorified man but what Christ did was this he turned his back on his glory in one sense he laid his glory by for the second time he laid his glory by when he was born of a virgin Born into this world, but for the second time he laid his glory by. He turned his back on it and he came back down into the world. The first half of his mission being completed, he'd reached the glory. Now he, he goes on to complete the second half of his mission, which was the bearing away of the sin of the world. Now that's the importance of the transfiguration. We have reached the halfway house. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ could have just gone into the glory, into heaven. But instead, he turns round and comes down. Why? For you and for me. We have absolutely no idea why he should love us so. But for you and for me, he turns round and he comes back. And in doing that, we see once more the principle of the cross. We see it in his birth. He laid his glory by and came to this world. He accepted limitation. He accepted a human form. He became a weak little thing, cradled in his mother's arm, a woman's arms, that, as it were, depended on a human being for its very life. And so that was the principle of the cross. He lost his life that he might find it. He lost it again in his baptism when he identified himself with the saving purpose of God, which meant the cross for him. And now again we find him identifying himself with God again. He loses his life. He is the exemplification of what he himself teaches. He who would save his life shall lose it. He who would lose his life, the same, shall find it. So he loses his life and comes back in. He goes on to the cross. Now how much has all this got for us? Think. You turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 and see what it says there. It says in these wonderful words and the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The God of all grace who called you and me unto his eternal glory in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory what have you been called unto called unto his eternal glory where in Christ the same glory we see here is the glory God has called you and me to isn't that wonderful now turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and um, verse uh, 10 Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 Listen to these wonderful words. But we behold him who has been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. I've read verse 9. For it became him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering bringing many sons unto glory. What is Christ doing? God has called us to his eternal glory. Christ is bringing many sons unto glory. That's the second thing. Now turn to Colossians 1 verse 27. How does God do it? He puts Christ by his Spirit within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Not Christ for you, not Christ with you, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the one last scripture I'll give you in this matter is in Revelation chapter 21 verse from verse 9 to 11 where we have the promise that one day we shall all be transfigured in glory where it says we behold the bride, the wife of the Lamb and it says it's a, the new city, I beheld the, the the, the new Jerusalem, the city of God coming down out of heaven having the glory of God and if you read that wonderful description it's just like the Lord Jesus Christ the city shines as the sun it's as white as light there is no the, the Lamb is the lamp God is the light it, it is a brilliant radiance of God's glory that's all, that's all you can say what is that? that's transfiguration one day you're all going to be transfigured. Think of it. Every one of us in this room, if you've been born of the Spirit of God, you're going to be transfigured. Well, put up with those little aches and pains and those circumstances that weary you. And uh, not say put up with them if the Lord would touch them and get rid of them for you here and now through, your, through faith. But believe me, what's it all, what is this light affliction which is but for a moment which works for us, an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. an exceeding and eternal weight of glory light affliction light affliction well you don't feel it's light affliction now especially if you look at the things which are seen but if you look at the things which are not seen then it's an eternal and exceeding a weight of glory think of it well now we must finish this chapter what does remain in the rest of this chapter? It's no coincidence that following this event we have the reiteration three times in verse 9, verse 12, and verse 22 and 23 that the way to the realization of God's kingdom is Calvary. In the first few verses from verse 9 to verse um, 13, it is about Elijah. We have mentioned that already, just about Elijah. But it doesn't matter whether it's John the Baptist or whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The way to the realization of the kingdom is... It's through the cross. It is through suffering. There is no other way. It is through the cross. And then again we have it in verse 22 and 23 after this event, this story of the epileptic son. And uh, again we are told that the realization of the kingdom can only be through Calvary. Calvary. Now we have here the story of the epileptic boy. It is not a coincidence. one moment you have on the mountain top the most wonderful scenes of glory the next moment you're taken down into the deep a a dark valley and you have a scene which is anything but glory it's as far from glory as one can imagine a lad that's mad well he's not just mad he's, he's epileptic i think that's even worse sometimes it's as if someone perfectly normal suddenly just goes berserk what can you do? the father can't do anything the family can't do anything no one knows what to do I think that in this story you have symbolised for us the world in all its hopelessness and helplessness if Christ had gone into the glory if he'd stepped if he had stepped into heaven at this point there would be no hope no hope for anyone but he turned round and he came down and the first case he met was this epileptic boy now why the lord was so harsh with them with the father and with the others Is interesting isn't it because perhaps there is something in the way the father speaks as if he's just going from one to the other waiting for some kind of magical power to be exercised he says I did take him to your disciples but he couldn't do anything and the Lord Jesus said oh how long his own words are here oh faithless and perverse generation now he doesn't say oh faithless and perverse disciples But, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you? How long shall I put up with you? It was as if he was saying, if only you yourself had the faith, don't just pass it on to others, you yourself. He goes on to say later to the disciples, when they came to him privately, because they were more to blame than the Father, they said, we couldn't do it, why couldn't we do it? They asked him privately. And he said to them, because of your little faith. Now it is a very interesting thing, but he says, because of your little faith, and then says, but if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, now that's very small. So what did he mean? Because of your little faith, then he says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, which is very little indeed, you shall say to this mountain, be thou removed,
1: and it shall be, and
0: nothing shall be impossible to you. It seems to me quite clear that the Lord was saying, It's not the amount of faith, but it's how we exercise, the amount we exercise our faith that matters. Isn't the operative word, if you shall say to this mountain, if you shall say to this mountain, as you burn your boats, you say. Faith is not that thing which says, now then, all shut up, we'll wait and see. (laughs) We'll wait and see. See. Don't burn our boats.'" Oh, we've known that over this house, have we not, in bricks and mortar, again and again and again. If we just waited to see, we would still be here, uh, with not a thing done. But it's only because we've, we've said, the Lord has said, forward. And we go forward. God meets the need. It's the same in other things. First, to know the mind of God, that's the sequence. To know the will of God in different matters, And then go forward and exercise faith. Because faith flows from the author of our faith. Author and perfecter of our faith. And the key to all these situations is to know the mind of the Lord. Not to just have some system that we just foist on the Lord. But the sovereignty of God in different situations. To know his mind. Then go forward. And I'm sorry that in the revised versions and the new versions, they've cut out that little scripture at the very end of that which says and this kind comes not forth uh, except by prayer and fasting. Because uh, it is, I'm sure, it goes to the key of the matter that we can't just see the Lord work in very difficult situations without some cost to ourselves. Faith is not just an easy thing. Well, I think we must end there, there's such a lot that we could say, but it is faith exercised in the Christ of glory, of all glory and of all power that sees something happen. Now just note that this section ends with an altogether different kind of miracle which seems so far removed about temple taxes, taxation, well we would call it today income tax, and uh, in in those days it went for the keeping up of the administration, which of the country was mostly religious, and they had to pay tax, and um, the Lord said to Peter, well we haven't got anything, we're living by faith, just go down to the water, um, throw out your fishing line, sling your fishing line, and And then the first fish that comes, take it. Now, now just think of the faith that had to be exercised. Have you ever thought of it? I mean, first of all, Peter would have said, well, what a silly thing to do. Well, Lord, I mean, if you're going to give us a a coin in a fish's mouth, surely you could say, Lord, just appear here. Or let some creature come to the door with it in its mouth or something. Why have to go down to the sea. Second thing is this. Isn't it interesting the Lord said the first fish? I've often wondered, what size fish
1: was it? (laughs) No,
0: really, why did the Lord say the first fish, pull it in, it's as if um, um, uh, he was saying now, I mean there must have been some reason for it, could it have been that uh, Peter would see some little tiny fish and think, well that's not it,
1: (laughs) can't be that
0: one. You see, somewhere behind it, there is a principle. It goes back to what the mother of the Lord said to the servants once. Whatsoever he saith, do it. Whatsoever he saith, do it. This is the key to everything. It's not what you believe or you conceive to be, right or the way, but what he says. You must always set above everything the sovereignty of God himself. His interpretation of the way, his interpretation of circumstances, his interpretation um, of uh, what is happening. They went. Peter went down, he threw his line in, he caught whatever size fish it was, he pulled it in, he opened its mouth, and there was a shekel. A shekel, you know, is not a small amount of money, by the way. It was something. And the Lord said, that will pay my tax and yours. My tax and yours. Well, you see, sometimes we forget that uh, the evidence of the Lord's presence is not just in one kind of a miracle, but in all kinds. And here you've got the confirmation and the authentication once again of the Lord's ministry. He comes down from the Mount of Glory back into this world now from this point on we trace his course steadily through to Jerusalem and to the cross he is in fact on the last stage of his ministry shall we pray (coughs) dear lord if there is one thing that all of us would Want, more than anything else, it is to see thy glory. And we pray, beloved Lord, that every one of us may be prepared for that glory. Thou knowest, Lord, the way thou art leading us. We just commit ourselves to thee and pray together, Dear Lord, wilt thou do something in all our lives, out bringing many sons unto glory. Oh, Lord, do something in us, we pray. And we ask it for thy name's sake. Amen.